1978 was a year that something really memorable happened. Um, and some of you were alive during that time, and you'll remember this well. Some of you, even if you weren't alive during that time, um, you, you might have heard of this. In 1978, there was a single event where over 900 people died. Um, over 300 people in this group who died were children, or at least were minors under 18. And some of you already know this event. It, it was all associated with a group of people that had come to follow one man, and that man's name was Jim Jones. Um, and so some of you may have heard of kind of Jonestown and this cult following that Jim Jones had where he was a religious and political kind of organizer and, um, and leader. And uh, his, his People's Temple movement all culminated in an event where a group of over 900 people gathered together and committed mass suicide. Committed mass suicide, and there are tapes that recorded, and it was sort of this suicide revolution that went on. In short, what happened was a large group of people became so enamored with a certain teacher and with a certain teaching that they were willing to follow him all the way to death. In fact, now if you hear the, the phrase that's thrown around now about drinking the Kool-Aid, this is where that originated, where people poisoned themselves by drinking Kool-Aid that had cyanide in it. Now you look at something like that and you just say, that, that is the, the height of deception, the height of, of just talking about what can happen to us as human beings as far as our capacity to be deceived. And sometimes we're tricked over different things and we just shrug it off and say, well, it's no big deal. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody gets tricked sometimes. But if there's anything that's illustrated by the incident with Jonestown, what's illustrated is that we must be careful who we follow. We must be careful who we listen to because deception can, in a very literal way, lead to death. And here's the situation we find ourselves in. I, I know not everybody in this room is a believer in Jesus, but, but that's sort of the gathering that we have right now. So for those of us who are believers in Jesus, we live in a time now where Jesus isn't right here with us physically. So if we hear something and we're not quite sure it's off, we can't just turn to Jesus and say, tell us if that's off, tell us if that's false, tell us if that's true. That, that seems like that would be just the fail-safe place to do. That we could just turn to Jesus and say, tell us what's true, tell us what's not. We don't have Jesus right here with us. But Jesus also hasn't called us just to retreat from the world, just to say, you know what, I'm never going to trust anyone, I'm never going to trust anything, I'm not going to read books, I'm not going to listen to speakers, I'm not going to go to church, I'm just going to avoid anybody that could possibly lead me astray. In fact, if you go that way, you're really only trusting one person. You're only really trusting yourself, and you at some point have to humble yourself and say, am I really the most trustworthy person in the world? And if you're honest, you realize you're not. We've got to figure this out. What do we do about this? What do we do about living in a world where Jesus has called us to follow him, and yet we know that there are people out there that would deceive us, some on purpose and some maybe because they're deceived themselves. And in this passage that we're going to go through in the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been studying through all summer, we're almost finished, that this week and next week will be the final two weeks, Jesus talks about false teachers and false teaching. And he gives us a grid for how we understand how we interact with the kind of teachings that are out there. And in short, what Jesus is going to tell us is that we follow others to the extent that they follow Jesus. 
The way that we interact with others is not by completely retreating from the world. We do listen to teachers. We do follow leaders. We do take pastors seriously. We don't retreat. We're part of the body of Christ. But we follow others only to the extent that they follow Jesus. We hold them to a standard that is outside of them. We're not enamored with somebody's charisma. We're not enamored with somebody's intelligence. We hold them to the standard of Jesus. And that's going to be at the center of the passage that we'll go through in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 23. Now, let me just walk you through how this passage unfolds in a couple ways. Let me first of all say this. This is definitely the scariest passage in the Sermon on the Mount. So I'll just prepare you now. There's some stuff in this passage that just, it, it, it will make you shake in your boots a little bit. It's Jesus speaks very strongly. I'm going to look to reflect that in the way that I handle this. But the passage really breaks into two parts. So verses 15 through 20 are really a warning to the hearers. And that means all of us. All of us are hearers. All of us are people that listen to teachers. You're doing it right now, literally. All of us read books. All of us hear people on TV. All of us hear politicians. We, we all are hearers. And so there's a warning to the hearers of how we actively take on the fact that we hear different teachings and we have to sort through what's true and what's not. And then in verses 21 through 23, there's going to be a warning to the teachers, which some of you might think, well, that's fine. First half of the sermon's for me. Second half of the sermon is for you. Like, it's, it, I, I can tune out at that point. And I want to tell you right now, you'll see this when we walk through the passage. The warning to the teachers is for you also. The warning to the teachers is targeted towards people that are more upfront, but it's a word from Jesus, a sharp warning that spreads out to all of us and pushes us all towards introspection and to taking this seriously. Um, so this is a great thing to do anytime, but especially because there's a real seriousness about this passage. Before we open it up, I'm just going to pause. I want to pray for us. I want to invite you to pray with me as we open up God's word and see what he has to say to us. So, Father, thank you that you have spoken, um, because we would have very little hope of figuring out the truth if you hadn't actively given us your word and spoken, us, spoken to us through your Son, who is the ultimate word of God. Father, we pray that you lead us this morning. We pray that you lead us to take your word seriously. We pray that you protect us from deception we pray that you protect us from the consequences. We pray that you wake us up and call us this morning to correction and repentance in ways that we have been deceived or even deceiving others or even deceiving ourselves. We pray that you lead us in this way in the name of our Savior and King, Jesus. Amen. All right, so I, I am, as usual, I'm going to put the verses up here on the screen, but I, but I invite you, if you have an open Bible, open your Bible because I'm going to talk about some stuff later on in Matthew, and because we've been going through the whole Sermon on the Mount, it just helps to kind of see it laid out there before you. So if you have an open Bible, uh, or if you have a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 7, and we'll start in verse 15. As I said, it starts with the warning to the hearers. And so here's the warning to the hearers. Giftedness, or if I was doing the outline this morning and, and not this earlier, three days ago, I would say giftedness and position, or sort of giftedness and title, are no substitute for truth. In other words, our standard is not how charismatic or intelligent another person is. Our standard is the truth. 
So Jesus starts the passage with the only command in these verses. Verse 15, he says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And and so just so we understand what Jesus is talking about here, a prophet is somebody who says, this is what God says. So he's saying, all right, there are people out there that say, this is what God says. They're teachers, they're out front. Prophet doesn't always mean somebody who's predicting the future. It just means somebody who's saying, this is God's message to us. So he says, beware, because there are false prophets. There are people who are deceived or deceiving. Now here, I I want you just to notice this. Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. That means discerning truth and error is whose job? It's your job. There certainly is a high responsibility on me or on anybody else who gets up front here. And I want you to know we take that prayerfully and seriously. I will be held deeply accountable if I perpetuate deception. But I think it's very powerful that Jesus begins the message by saying, I am going to hold the false prophets accountable. Don't worry about that. As for you, your job, your responsibility is to watch out for them. In fact, just think about this. Some of you go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible. Who was the first false teacher? Yes, it's the serpent in the the garden. So it's Satan in the garden. And the deception that he gives leads Adam and Eve to disobeying God and eating from the tree. Um, Now, in the aftermath of this, something really interesting happens. And the really interesting thing happens is that everybody keeps pointing the blame at somebody else. God comes to Adam. He says, what have you done? And Adam says, it was her. It was the woman. And not only was it was the woman, you gave me the woman. So it's kind of your fault and it's kind of her fault. <laughs> and then God goes to the woman and he says, what is this that you've done? And she says, well, it's a servant. He told me and I just listened to him. Here's what God does in the aftermath. He blames all of them. He blames the serpent for the deception. He blames the woman for listening to the serpent. He blames the man for listening to the woman. He says, it is all of your fault. He doesn't simply say, well, what could you do? The serpent is really crafty. What could you do? He says, you had enough information to know the truth and the lie. You should have said no to the deception. It is not your responsibility to make sure that there's not false teaching out there. It is your responsibility to know the truth of God's word enough that you are prepared to reject false teaching. And by the way, listen to what he says, how he describes the false teachers. He says, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. And here's what this means. Israel, and and Jesus here is speaking to the people of Israel, God's chosen people. Israel was often depicted as God's flock, as his bunch of sheep. And so what Jesus is saying here when he says they come to you in sheep's clothing is he says, they look like they're one of you. He's not, there are lots of false teachings out there that have nothing to do with religion, nothing to do with the faith. We, we could look at a different, very outspoken atheist and say, well, that's false teaching because they're saying something that's not true. And sure, fair enough. That's not the primary thing Jesus is warning about here. Jesus is warning that there are going to be people who present themselves as Christian teachers, but are actually perpetuating falsehood. And he says, especially be careful of those guys. Especially be careful of them. Because we're less likely to be led astray by a teaching that has nothing to do 
with the faith if we're Christians. We're less likely to be led astray by somebody that says, ah, Jesus wasn't important. In fact, I don't even know if Jesus existed. Most of us are going to say, ah, we, we, we really kind of like Jesus, so we're not going to listen. But if somebody comes in and says, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe the Bible. I believe Jesus was great. I believe Jesus died for our sins. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. If they start with all of that, that provides for them a platform for us to be much more likely to follow them down a trail of deception. And this is something that happens and is happening in our world today Um, in, in many ways. One of the ways that it happens is kind of through this line of thinking. Say, hey, we love Jesus. Jesus is very important. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the most loving, compassionate person ever. Um, and that's why we've come to believe that there is no hell. Because Jesus, the Son of God, the most compassionate being ever in the universe, clearly there wouldn't be a hell. Clearly there wouldn't be any kind of final judgment. Clearly there wouldn't be any kind of punishment. It begins with the truth. And that provides the groundwork for the lie. Where you read just... Yeah, it was just last week. Narrow is the road that leads to life, and few find it. This isn't something that we revel in, that we say, oh, we love hell. We love this idea. We love final judgment. We really get excited about it. But it means that we say, it is not our job to change the score. It is not our job to say, God said this, but really he should have said this. It's our job to say, here's what God has told us. And some of it is going to be stuff that we find very welcoming. And some of it is going to be stuff that we're going to have a hard time with. And we're going to be tempted to believe any kind of teaching that smooths it all over. Just know, and you can see this from Jesus' life, not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but through all the Gospels. Jesus had people that wanted to be nowhere else except right where he was. And Jesus had people who wanted to be anywhere but where he was. Just because there's a message in the Bible that irks you doesn't mean that message is meant to be changed. It's much more likely that you are meant to be changed. It is your job. It is your your responsibility. In fact, just, just to kind of give away some application right now, um, there are lots of false teachings out there, and, and, and I even say um, there, there are false teachings on both sides of the aisle. There are false teachings that are sort of ultra-conservative, just in the sense that they're kind of like the Pharisees. They're sort of like, hey, we, we, we take the Word of God very, very seriously, and we take heaven and hell very, very seriously, and we take morality very, very seriously, and then it leads to sort of a legalism or a one-upmanship. Um, it, here's a general warning. If you listen to any teacher or read any book, and then you walk away from that and end up feeling like, huh, I knew I was better than other people, (laughs) take warning. Now, it may be that that's just you perverting what you read or what you heard, but also take warning. If you say, gosh, every time I listen to this guy, every time I read this person, every time I listen to this podcast, I end up concluding that I am much better than the homeless, much better than the poor, much better than the racist, much better than people of other religions, much better than the atheists. That is most likely a person who is not presenting the deeply humbling gospel of Jesus that says the only reason you are in the family of God is because in your deep guilt and shame and brokenness and enmity with God, God sent his son to rescue you from yourself and from hell. That's a message that humbles 
If you're getting a message and you feel pretty good about yourself, especially in comparison to others, take warning. And then take warning on the other side, on the more liberal side, take warning of any message that leaves you sort of with with the sense of, I knew I was okay. I knew I didn't really need to repent. I knew my sin wasn't any real big deal. I knew I was okay and my friends were okay no matter what they believe. If you end up with a teaching that's all about permissiveness, and by the way, permissiveness is not the same as grace. Grace is when you get a gift that you absolutely don't deserve. Permissiveness is when you just get something that naturally should have come your way. Beware of false teachings and the way that you handle this, the best way of handling this is not by trying to track down what every false teacher is saying. The best way to do this is to know the truth so well that you recognize falsehood for what it is. That you're like people who spout counterfeit money. And you know how they train those people? They don't show them the counterfeit dollars. They show them the real dollar again and again and again and again and again and again. Until they finally slip in a fake. And they spot the fake because they know the truth. Read God's word. Listen to God's word. Study God's word. Be in Bible studies. Listen to other people and what they're saying about God's word. Take this so seriously that you recognize the error. And Jesus gives, gosh, I, I said a lot, only one verse. So let's go on a little bit. <laughs> By their fruit, he, he, he gives us a clue. So he says, all right, they're out there. Look out for the false teachers. I already gave you kind of some thoughts on this. He says, By their fruit, you will recognize them. And then he illustrates that further. He says, Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? He says, Well, th- this makes no sense. Obviously, you wouldn't look for one type of fruit on a tree that produces another kind of fruit. He says, Likewise, Every good tree bears good fruit. Every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Just straightforward, he says, all right, the fruit is how you're going to recognize a tree. Same thing applies to a false teacher. Now, the key for us understanding this is to ask the question, well, what does he mean by fruit in this case? If I'm going to recognize them by their fruit, what is the fruit? I say what the fruit is, it could probably fit into three categories, and I think all these are probably right. The first category would be that the fruit is their teaching, the actual teaching that they give. The second thing that you could say is their fruit is just their actions, the way that they live their lives. And then the third thing is that you could say, well, their fruit is, fruit, fruit is kind of a result. It's the result of the kind of tree it is. So the fruit may be sort of the results that come from this person's teaching and the lives of the people that listen to them. So all three of those could be part of it. I want to focus in on the first one I mentioned to say when he warns us and says, recognize them by their fruit, that he's saying recognize them by their teaching. And here's why I think that that's primarily what's in mind here. If you have an open Bible, you can turn just a couple pages later to Matthew chapter 12. The same book of the Bible, um, in, in a different context, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and speaking to people that at least in some sense he's considering to be false teachers. And he says virtually the same thing that he says here. In chapter 12, verse, 20, uh, verse 33, he says... Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. So we're like, all right, so far so good, same thing. Verse 34, he says, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. 
Jesus isn't simply saying, all right, they may be saying the truth, but you have to know the inner workings of their lives. Much of the time, we don't really have any ability to do that. What Jesus is saying, I think, primarily is don't be enamored with their charisma. Don't be enamored with their intelligence. Don't be enamored because they come from the same denomination as you or the same tribe or because you happen to line up politically in some different ways. Don't be enamored with any of that. Hold them up to the standard of the truth. Listen to their actual teaching and measure it up against what Jesus says. And, and he, just, just another quick note on this. Um, some of us, the, the, this whole idea of, of how we handle teachers, some of this troubles us because in our lives, we've had a teacher that really impacted us, or you've had a pastor who really impacted you, or an author who really impacted you, and then some things came up about their personal life that, that really brought that all into question. And they had an affair, or they embezzled money, or, uh, or there was domestic violence, or just something that happened that made you say, well, what, what do I do with this? And some of you might even be right now thinking, I, I don't know what I do with that. Or you might be aware that, that while we don't know exactly what's going on, there, there's a lot of rumblings about Willow Creek Church in the Chicago area and Bill Hybels, who's been a very influential Christian writer and, and speaker. Um, now there's a lot of allegations about kind of sexual misconduct. And we, we don't know what happened, but, but it's troubling. You might look at that and say, well, well, what do I do in a case like that? Do I need to burn all the Bill Hybels books? Do I need to get rid of all the sermons? Do I need to disregard everything that he said? And here's the deal. Here's something that's really significant. I don't think Jesus is giving you that burden. I don't think he is laying on you the burden of saying, I've got to figure out their personal lives because otherwise I won't know whether or not to believe them. Jesus is laying on you the burden of saying, know the truth so well that you can recognize the lie. And if you end up looking back, on somebody who previously said a bunch of things and then some unflattering or, or just bad things come about, out about their life, you know what you do with all their past sermons and all their past books? You hold them up to the teaching of Jesus. A flawed person can still say true things. A fraud can still say true things. It is not your job to sort out the inner workings of a person's life. In fact, look at what Jesus says. These are scary words. In verse 19, he says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by, your fruit, they, uh, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So not, not getting into the full picture of what he's talking about here. He's clearly talking about judgment. And here's the way this pulls in. Jesus says, It will be sorted through in the end. It is not your job to know exactly where everybody stands. Jesus will take care of that. Your job is to know the truth so well that you recognize falsehood and that you avoid hero worship because charisma and intelligence and position are no substitute for the truth. Now, that's the warning to the hearers. Jesus transitions verses 21, 22, and 23, to a message to the teachers. I'm going to put the, all three verses up here, and then we'll kind of go through them one by one. So this is, this is the really scary part. This is the, the scariest part of the entire Sermon on the Mount. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. This is frightening. I mean, just again, I I don't want to... There's a temptation, and I especially, I, I, I sometimes have this temptation because I hate conflict, I hate discomfort. So anytime I sense people are uncomfortable, I'm like, I got to fix it, I got to make them feel good about themselves. This passage is scary. I think we all need to resist the temptation of making ourselves immediately feel better because Jesus has given a sharp warning here. Now, a second, we'll go through these verses one by one, but let me just say, um, there's at least a way I heard this passage characterized growing up that I think is a misunderstanding, Um, and I'll say it up front, Um, that that what I heard a lot was people say, all right, well, here's what this is describing. This is describing the person who is religious with no relationship. This is describing the person who sort of has the right beliefs and is doing all the right things, but their heart doesn't really belong to God. I don't think that interpretation bears itself out, and we'll see as we walk through it. I don't think Jesus is saying here, you can do all the right things, and still your heart isn't quite there. Um, First of all, I don't think it's possible for any of us to do all the right things anytime, let alone do all the right things if we haven't had a heart change. In the end, I don't think the warning to teachers is, hey, beware, because you can be doing all the most moral things in the world, but your heart isn't really there. Ultimately, this passage is about obedience. You see that in verse 21 when he says, not the one who confesses Lord, Lord, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. You see it in verse 23 when he talks about them as evildoers. What he's telling any of us who are teachers, any of us who are leaders, any of us who have any kind of position, or any of you that may not have position but have influence in the lives of your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors, your co-workers, that he's saying giftedness or position or reputation is no substitute for obedience. Let's just see how this bears out by walking back through it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now, here's the deal. You know what the early church confession was? The most simple form of the early church confession for somebody to show they were a believer was to proclaim, Jesus is Lord. So this isn't an accident here. Jesus is saying, you can have the right confession." The right acknowledgement, Jesus is Lord, is not just saying Jesus is good. It's saying Jesus will one day inherit the entire earth because he is the son of God. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. What he says goes. Jesus is Lord. And Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. So he's not saying, he's not juxtaposing, hey, you can be living really right, but you don't actually love God. The things he's putting in contrast is you can have the right confession, but not be living as a follower of Jesus. You can have the right confession, but not be on the narrow road. Now look, he describes it in even more detail in verse 22. It says many. Now he's expanded it. Last week, we went through a passage that talked about the narrow road, And the wide road, the broad road, the narrow road, he said, few find it. But of the broad road, he said, many enter this way. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Now, here's the deal. 
uh, all of us might feel like we've got a little bit of a kind of, you know, spiritual resources or spiritual reputation based on what we've done. We've got a resume that we could look back on and we could be like, well, I taught Sunday school, you know, kind of check on the resume. This is what I've done spiritually. I read through the entire Bible. I had perfect attendance at church for a couple months. Um, I, you know, I, I raised my kids and read the Bible to them. You know, at, at our wedding, we took communion. Wh- whatever it is, we have different things in our spiritual resume. Let's just look at these guys and say, pretty good spiritual resume here. They're not just saying, we attended church. They're saying, we prophesied in your name. And the implication is not necessarily that they prophesied falsely. They prophesied in his name. They drove out demons in his name. They performed miracles in his name. Jesus is upping the ante here and saying, I don't care how good your spiritual resume looks. But also, here's the deal with all of these three things. If we are enamored with the idea that somebody's done these things, then we have become enamored with the idea that showy displays of religion are more significant than daily obedience in following Jesus. And I'll just tell you from an experiential standpoint, it is much easier for me to get up here and preach a sermon than to live day by day in following Jesus on the narrow road. It is easier to compile an impressive spiritual resume. In fact, and I just have to tell you the story because it's it's a shocking and terrifying story in the book of Acts. Um, In Acts chapter 19, you can look it up later, I promise I'm not making this up. Um, the, the Apostle Paul had gone around and he was casting out demons, and that was one of the signs that was leading people to hear the gospel because he was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And then there were these seven guys that were sort of like professional exorcists. These were like early ghostbusters. They were like, all right, they went around casting out demons. They saw that Paul was doing this, and so here's what they did. They said, we are going to start casting out demons in Jesus' name. And they even had a construction. They would say to the demon, Um, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out. Now, the passage seems to imply that for a while it was working. There were these seven brothers. For a while it was working. And then they said this to a demon, a demon-possessed person, who then turned to them and said, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I've heard about. But who are you? And then he turned on them, and again, I'm not making this up, turned on them and beat all seven of them so severely that they ran out of the room naked and bleeding. Here's the point of all of this. You can even cast out demons in the name of Jesus and have no true abiding connection to him. Our resume is not what brings us into the kingdom of heaven. I don't care how good any of our resumes are. I don't care how long we've taught Sunday school. I don't care how many sermons we've done, how many Christian kids we've raised. None of that is ultimately what gets us in. It says in verse 23, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me. And again, don't miss this, what he says at the end. He doesn't say, away from me, all of you people who obeyed me perfectly, but I didn't really have your hearts. He says, away from me, you evildoers. In other words, in another way of translating evildoers, if if you have an open Bible, it might even say it differently in your translation, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness is when we just ignore God in in a couple different ways. It can be we ignore God because we say, God tells me not to do this, but I'm going to go ahead and do it because I don't care. 
I'm going to have sex with who I want to have sex with. I'm going to drink what I want to drink. I'm going to look at what I want to look at. I, you know, God says this, but I don't care. And, and it can also be on the passive side. It can also be on the side of, well, I know God says to take care of the poor, but don't really want to. I know God says to be kind to people who are hurting, but don't really want to. There's a difference between practicing lawlessness and as a believer in Jesus, struggling with sin. None of us is perfect. We all struggle with sin. We all stumble in sin. But I just want to ask you, look at yourself. Take take this as a moment of self-investigation. Because Jesus' words here, if they're true of teachers with great spiritual resumes, then it also is true for you to examine your life and say, does my life resemble more somebody that says, yeah, I do sin, and man, I hate it when I sin. And when I do, I confess it to God, and, and sometimes I talk to my small group, or I talk to my accountability partner, and I'm trying to figure that out, and I've seen growth in my life. I wish it was steeper. I wish it was, it was, it was better, but, but, but I'm growing, and I'm growing in my compassion, and I'm growing in my generosity, but man, I'm not there yet, and I'm, and I'm still walking that narrow road. Or does your life more resemble somebody that has made the right profession but that there's not really discernible evidence that you are on the narrow road following Jesus. And here's the deal. We don't get into heaven because of our works. But if your life doesn't show any discernible evidence that Jesus is your king, he's probably not. You probably have made a confession without a real embracing of faith and repentance. And Jesus says... That gets you nowhere. This is a sharp and scary warning to teachers and warning to all of us. This all comes together in this idea. You know what? For hearers and for teachers, the standard is Jesus. We follow others to the extent that they follow Jesus. We don't get enamored. We don't practice hero worship. We don't practice the idolatry of having a teacher or especially not a politician that is always right to us, the only one we worship is Jesus. And when it comes to any of us, any influence we have over our lives, we take the time to look at our lives and say, all right, if if I'm going to have assurance of faith, if I'm going to have assurance of my salvation before God, which I think is something that God wants us to have, that the Holy Spirit wants to bring into our lives, He doesn't want to bring us chaos where we're constantly wondering where we stand with God. But if we're going to get that, we're not going to get that simply by looking back and saying, no, I remember one time raising my hand. I remember one time marking on a card. I remember one time walking forward. Or even, as, as significant as baptism is, even saying, I remember getting baptized. The ultimate place Jesus points us to is to say, look at your life and you be the judge. Is there discernible evidence that Jesus is king? Jesus is our standard in both. And also, don't, don't miss this. I, I kind of skipped over this, but I want to come back to it. Think about what Jesus just said in verses 21 through 23, because he probably said, at least to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, the most shocking thing he said yet. Jesus, in verse 22, said, many on that day, and he's clearly speaking about judgment day, says, many on that day will say to me, Jesus is a Jewish man living in the first century, and he just said, on judgment day, when people are making their plea, you know who they're talking to? They're talking to Jesus. Now, I know a lot of you, 
and, and, and you know, I, I know a lot of you well enough that we care about each other and we love one another, but let me just say this. When it comes to Judgment Day, you will not have a thought in your head of what I think of you. You won't care and you shouldn't care. Who cares what Dan Franklin thinks when it comes to Judgment Day? Jesus is saying, many in that day will say to me, and then in verse 23 he says, and I will say to them, Jesus is receiving pleas and making judgments at the final judgment. Jesus is presenting himself as the one at the center of everything. When it comes to being all in, don't be all in with the teacher. Don't be all in with me. Don't be all in with LBF Church and just say they could never get it wrong. Don't be all in in that sense. Read your Bibles. Question things. If you come back and say, Dan, I think you were off in what you said about this verse, come back. I'll welcome it. I'll talk to you about that. Don't go all in with any teacher, with any author, with any church. Go all in with Jesus. And when you go all in with Jesus, that gives you the opportunity to come back to that author, to come back to that teacher, to come back to that church and say, you know what? I'm not going to run scared. I'm going to be a participant. I'm going to be a part of what God is doing in the world. But I'm going to do it through holding my teachers and holding myself to the standard of Jesus. And this is what brings us assurance and hope as we continue to follow a Jesus who's not with us physically, but has promised us eternity. Let me pray for us now, and I want to invite you to join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to stumble about in darkness. If you hadn't spoken, we would be truly lost. And sometimes we still act like we're lost. Sometimes we still stumble around acting like we can't understand this world that we're in. But you have spoken, and I pray that you lead us with the wisdom and the conviction to take you so seriously that we are reading the Bible constantly, that we're listening to the Bible, that we're studying through, that we're listening to what others have to say, that we are taking it upon ourselves to know the truth that you've revealed so well that we don't get tricked and we don't get led astray, and we don't experience, experience the ruin that deception can bring. Father, I pray that you protect us from self-deception, from us looking at ourselves and being enamored with our own resume or with our own accomplishments instead of looking at whether or not we're living lives of obedience that mark the walk on the narrow road. Father, I pray that you bring assurance to people who are unstable, and I pray that you bring... <laughs> instability to anyone with false assurance. Show us the kindness of revealing to us the truth about you and the truth about ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.